Has the weather taken a toll on your home's foundation and concrete slabs? All the heat, rain, freezing, and settling can wreak havoc on your foundation. Cracked walls, cracked brick, and sinking concrete can all be repaired economically by Dwyer. No job is too big or too small for Dwyer. Call today for your free estimate, 859-231-0998. The region's largest and most trusted name in raising sunken concrete and fixing foundations. Don't wait for the problem to get worse. Visit DwyerCompanies.com to learn more. Wing is a paid program on 630 WLAP. Got a wife, got a family. Earn my living with my hand. Rolling is still downtown. was a barber, the most unsightly man, he was born in Tuscaloosa, he died right here in Birmingham, 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 the greatest city in Alabama, you can travel across this entire land. Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. This week joining us, we have Norman Jetmanson, who you guessed it, resides in Birmingham. Norman's been working on a movie called The Iron Man of Swanee, a story from 1899. And at this point, Tom, I'll let you take okay. over. All right. Uh, first of all, that keep playing whatever you got left on it. This is a song by Randy Newman from a album that came out in 1974 called Good Old Boys, which it's an interesting work in and of itself. Um, and this is going to be an exciting show today. So let me just jump into my um, Bible reading. This is the 13th chapter from Revelation. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there were given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all tongues and kindreds and nations. Okay, I want to, as we before we just jump into this thing here, uh, I want to read from an article in the New York Times that came out uh, in January of 2019. And the article is entitled, Long Before Alabama, the South Had Sewanee. Uh, the template for Nick Saban's dominating Crimson Tide teams is easy to see. If you look back 120 years, and I'm not going to read this entire article, but I'm going to read a few things for it. Uh, long before Alabama and now Clemson Rose's proud football powers, the 1899 University of the South football team, familiarly known as the Sewanee Tigers, provided a blueprint for Southern college football domination. And then it talks about what's going on uh, with programs today, but then says, but Swanee, a small town 
on the Cumberland Plateau created the template for the flush modern Southern football powerhouse, and it has been used time and time again, reaching its apotheosis, love that word, at Alabama under coach Nick Saban. Um, they quote uh, Woody Register in here. Um, then they get to, uh, it says, nonetheless, Norman Jetmanson, a Birmingham lawyer with whom we're speaking today, is putting together a documentary on the Swanee team. Is certain today's elite teams would be impressed with the Tigers. Um, and it goes on to essentially describe um, – you know, some of the incredible uniqueness of what the Sewanee football team was. I, I do think in many ways they are worlds apart from the kind of teams we see today, uh, certainly in terms of money uh, and, and even physical conditioning. Um, and I believe that these 1899 Tigers – had a particular form of physical courage that is almost unheard of today. But it's not for me to opine on this subject. That's why we have a guest today, uh, Norman Jetmanson. Norman, welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Thank you. Very honored to be here. Let me ask you this. I remember you at Sewanee. You probably graduated, what, 76? Correct. Okay, so you were a couple of years ahead of me uh, from Birmingham. Uh, were you an English or a poli-sci major? Uh, majored in English. Yes, yeah, so did I. And, uh, and then you, you went into uh, – did you go to Alabama Law School? I did. Okay. Um, and practiced law in Birmingham where I know several people from – Sawani, um, that were friends of mine there. What got you involved as you have been, uh, for so many years now in this story about this football team of 1899? Sure. Well, I had a good friend at Sawani, David Cruz. We were classmates. And uh, have stayed in touch all these years. We've been good friends for over 40 years. And David, uh, who is currently the clerk of the federal court in Mississippi, in Oxford, Mississippi, has on the side done several documentaries. Probably the most um, significant one is one he did on Governor William Winter of Mississippi called The Toughest Job, which uh, won a regional Emmy. So David and I uh, and some other Sewanee friends get together once a year to visit because we live all over the place. And during that dinner, I said, well, David, I have an idea for your next documentary. Why don't you do one on the Sewanee team of 1899? And David looked at me and said, that's a great idea. You helped me. Well, I had never done anything like that. And, uh, I agreed to help, not knowing what I was getting in for. That was five years ago, and we're close to the goal line now on the film. We've had a lot of hard work in between, but what we've put together is a pretty amazing story that I think will resonate not just with Sewanee people, but with the people who love Southern history and college football history. Tell us, if you will, briefly uh, uh well or, or take as long as you want about uh, the team how all these events came together to conspire to have a week and a half two week long trip or maybe even less than that on the train throughout the south where five games were played in six days and Swanee was unscored upon. Sure. Um, so let's go back to the year 1899. Swanee is a very small school on top of a mountain in a remote part of Tennessee. There are 326 students, a 
approximately 121 undergraduates, and then they at that time Swanee had a law school, medical school, and a seminary. So the rest of the students were in some kind of graduate school. This is only 34 years after the Civil War, which had, of course, devastated the South, and Swanee was no exception. Swanee had been founded in 1858 and had raised a half a million dollars by 1860 to start a, a, a large university. During the Civil War, the, uh, con- the Confederates, as they lost the war, the federal troops came to Swanee, blew up the cornerstone, and there were no buildings left on campus. So by 1899, Swanee was still struggling to survive in some ways, and uh, that was not uncommon in the South, but they were a particularly small school. In the late um, 1880s and early 1890s, football, which has started in the Northeast, started to catch on in the South, and Sewanee fielded its first football team in 1891. I'll add this footnote, Tom. Their first game in 1891 was against Vanderbilt. They lost 22-0. to They played on Sewanee's home field, at that time called Hardy Field, and it's now called Hardy McGee Field. It's the same field that was that they played on in 1891. So Sewanee's field today is the oldest college football field in the South and the fourth oldest in the country, which is pretty remarkable. Right. In 1898, Sewanee had gone four zero. And one of the teams they played was the University of Texas in Austin, and Sewanee beat them. Sewanee's season in 1898 was cut short because it was difficult at that time to find teams in the South to play because they were so far apart, and there was a yellow fever epidemic. So in 1899, a student at Sewanee who had graduated in 1898 came back get a master's. His name was Luke Lee, L-E-A. Luke Lee was from Nashville. He uh, is a fascinating character, and we can get into that a little more. But Luke came back as what was called the team manager. We would call that manager today the athletic director because at that time, colleges did not fund or run the football program. It was all run entirely by students. So as the team manager, Luke Lee was in charge of crafting the schedule, hiring the football coach, possibly recruiting students to come play, um, handling all the finances, travel, the lodging, which is when you think about one person doing that in 1899 where all they had was telegraph and train travel, it's, it's even more remarkable. So in 1899, Luke Lee put together a 12-game schedule, which was unheard of in the South at the time. And Texas had guaranteed Sewanee $750 if they would come out to Austin and play again, which Luke Lee accepted, but he knew that the cost to travel out to Austin would be enormous. And so in order to help pay for the trip, he scheduled games against Texas A&M, Tulane, LSU, and Ole Miss on the way back to help pay for the trip. So that's how the schedule came about. There's a, one other footnote to this. The biggest game in the South from the 1890s till the 1920s was Sewanee Vanderbilt on Thanksgiving Day. Right. And – in 1899, Luke Lee could not come to an agreement with Vanderbilt about how to split the proceeds because when teams played, they would split the gate receipts, and that's how they funded their program. And the Sewanee-Vanderbilt game was so big that Sewanee generally could pay for the rest of the season based on that one game. But in 1899, they did not play Vanderbilt. So Luke Lee had to find more teams to play and a way to finance it without the lucrative Vanderbilt game. So uh, he came up with this amazing schedule. 
a, a footnote that we'll just add here that probably nobody knows is that Sewanee was actually a founding member of the Southeastern Conference and was a member of that conference until what, 1939 maybe? Something like that, 1940 perhaps. Yeah. So they were, we they were, were a founding member. We were a founding member of the SEC. So I just wanted to add that. Go ahead. Yeah. And uh, you can stump people at cocktail parties if you ask them to name the three teams that were founding members that are no longer in the SEC. Right. And that's Georgia Tech, Tulane, and Sewanee. So um, Luke Lee put together this amazing schedule. Sewanee had a new coach that year. His name was Herman Milton Billy Souter. Souter had played football at Princeton, and his Princeton teammate, a guy named J.G. Lady Jane, had been Sewanee's coach in 1898. Jane went to North Carolina in 1899 and recommended Souter and Luke Lee interviewed and hired so you could come. So he had a new coach. He had a, a, a framework from 1898. A lot of those players came back to play. And uh, Sewanee had a unique advantage at that time because Sewanee's winters are, were so harsh that Sewanee's school year went from the spring till um, near the end of the year. And so they started school in the spring, and by the summer, when baseball was over, those players started practicing because, of, of course, this is long before the NCAA. There are no rules about practice. There are no rules about how many hours you can devote. And so Swanee put together a, a conditioning and practice program all summer long, whereas most schools that they played did not start until the fall, and so Swanee had that advantage of getting in great condition over the summer as well as executing plays. You know, Norman, one thing that I take away, I get from looking at the old pictures of these players, number one, they look like their faces. They, they look like children out of their, they're very boyish. They're, they don't look like tough men. Number two, they don't look all bulked up like today's athletes look from, you know, years of weightlifting and, and that kind of thing. They, they look like, uh, they're just, you know, their, their body shapes look somewhat normal. So you have to almost say that they just had incredible physical courage. Absolutely. And let me kind of, um, talk a little bit about football at that time. And that fits into to your observation. So football at that time was a very brutal sport. Um, there weren't even helmets until the mid-1890s, and those were flimsy little leather helmets. Most of the players um, played with long hair, and they, they didn't have really shoulder pads. They had a, cotton duck pants and uh, canvas or wool jerseys. Some of them had um, this mean-looking nose guard made out made out of uh, strong rubber. I've got one that I purchased for this film. It looks more like cast iron than rubber, and you wonder how it protected somebody if you got smashed in the nose. There was very little protective equipment. In addition, players uh, played both ways, so they. They played offense and defense. And incredibly, and this is part of our story, incredibly, if you came out of a game, you couldn't go back in. So players stayed in there when they were hurt, banged up, and it was considered cowardly to come out of a game. So they literally stayed in unless they were had a broken arm or a broken leg or were killed. And or killed. at the turn of the God at, almighty Lord, at, I'm staying in until I'm dead. Yeah, at the turn of the century, there were 18 or 19 deaths in um, football every year. And 
I think it was about 1897, a player named Richard Von Gammon played for the University of Georgia and died on the, in the game. And so the Georgia legislature voted to outlaw football. And the only reason it didn't get outlawed is Van Gammon's mother wrote the governor of Georgia and said, my son would not want to be the reason that football was abolished. He loved it. And based on that, the governor did not sign the bill. The game was a lot dirtier back then. Also, they they would, they from what I've been told, the dirty playing was just part of the deal. That was absolutely part of. There was no uh, real line of scrimmage. You just lined up nose to nose. There was no neutral zone, and uh, biting, kicking, punching were all legal. The uh, one rule that you were allowed to do was to run at people with and throw your cleats up at their legs. Um, another fascinating aspect at that time was that if you were on offense, your um, your teammates could, could take a running back and lift him up and throw him over the line of scrimmage for extra yards. And there was this brutal thing called a flying wedge. Oh, yeah. And in order to break the flying wedge, some of the people on defense would lift one of their guys up, throw him over the flying wedge to tackle the ball carrier. Um, Hey, fall means family farm fun, and Bywater Farms Autumn Fest is back. Check out the new attractions like the Big Country Coaster, our Jump Zone, Jumping Pillows, and Rosie's Ponies. Or visit some favorites like the Pumpkin Canyon, the Five Acre Corn Maze, and the Spooky Farmhouse. Hay rides are included for everyone with tickets. And while you're here, get some homemade fudge, fried apple pies, and apple cider donuts. It's all there at Autumn Fest, now through October 31st at Bywater Farm in Georgetown. For more info, go to www.bywaterfarm.com. Hear that? Is that America cheering or a sausage patty sizzling to perfection? It's time to cheer for Egg McMuffin and fresh cracked eggs at McDonald's. It's time to wake up to the aroma of freshly baked biscuits and treat yourself to a real honest-to-goodness morning meal. Breakfast, it's on at McDonald's. Choose any breakfast sandwich, buy one, get one free. Available only on the app. Price and participation may vary. McD app download and registration required. Single item at regular price. To your question, the average weight of the Swanee player in 1899 was 169 pounds. And a lot of that was due to the nature of the game. There were no huddles. So when you're on offense, you had three downs to make five yards. There was no forward passing. So it was all a ground game that would resemble what we would now say as a no huddle goal line defense. Well, so compelling. I don't want it to stop, but we got to go to a break. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show. Powered and we're by- speaking with Norman Jetmanson of Birmingham, Alabama. Sorry. We'll be back in just a minute. For more information about contests on this station, go to WLAP.com. Putting in place these mandates and requirements will cover 100 million workers from mask and vaccine mandates. Many of these firefighters and police officers have already recovered from COVID to calls for renewed lockdowns. I think this idea of using government coercion and force, one, is going to backfire. You're welcome to join the conversation mask-free. Sam, I am fired up. This looks too intentional. Just at the whole situation. Nobody is this stupid. News Radio 630 WLAP. Hi, I'm Tom Dupree. I've been in the investment business for 42 years. In this business, you observe human nature closely, and if you really observe, you might learn something. One thing I've learned is that when everybody is telling you something, it's usually wrong. Truth typically speaks in a small voice that requires effort and discernment to recognize. This is as true in the investment business as it is in life. Advice dispensed loudly and in a pushy way is usually being given with an ulterior motive, not one that is designed to benefit the hearer. 
for a free review of your retirement investment portfolio, call the Prefinancial Group at 859-233-0400 or look at DupreeFinancial.com. And be sure to listen to the Tom Dupree Show on Saturday mornings on News Radio 630 WLAP and Louisville's Talk Radio 1080 WKJK. The superstars of WWE Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown return to Lexington's Rupp Arena. The line starts here. See Finn Balor as he joins the Street Profits. We want the smoke! To face Universal Champion Roman Reigns. The tribal chief, the head of the table. And the Usos and much more. Sunday night, October 3rd at Rupp Arena. Tickets start at $20 at Ticketmaster.com. If you're suffering from cold, flu, or COVID symptoms, you need an accurate temperature reading as quickly as possible. Fever is the leading symptom of both the flu and COVID-19, so the sooner you rule out the common cold, the better. Then, seek medical advice on whether your fever means it's the flu or the deadlier COVID-19. Accuracy matters, so use the Exergen Temporal Scanner, the same thermometer used by medical professionals millions of times a day in hospitals and clinics to accurately detect fever. Learn more at exergen.com. Our children give us joy. They give us wonder. They give us the occasional mess. Considering all they do for you, why not do one of the best things you can do for them? Especially when it's this simple. See if your kids qualify for no-cost health insurance. They'll get all the coverage they need at no cost to you. Just think of it as returning the favor for everything they bring into your life. Apply online at connect.ky.gov kchip or call toll-free 1-877-KCHIP18. We've got a mix of sun and clouds across the area today with temperatures that will generally be topping out into the mid and upper 70s. Watch for a late day scattered thunderstorm. A little better shot for a scattered storm this evening before that stuff really ramps up as we go into Sunday and Monday, becoming much more widespread. Temperatures Sunday and Monday, upper 60s, low 70s. Have a great weekend from the WKYT First Alert Weather Center. I'm meteorologist Chris Bailey. Broadcasting live 24-7 from the Red State Barbecue Studios. This is News Radio 630 WLAP. Guys, on Talk It Agrees, it's finally time. Time to update our closets with new clothes we actually want to wear. Time to think about going back to the office or choosing a new way to work. Time to enjoy the best of fall, like long walks in the park and hot coffee on a brisk day. And that means it's time to look sharp and feel comfortable all day with Untuck It. Shirts designed to be worn, Untuck. Discover the perfect fitting shirt today at UntuckIt.com. Use promo code TIME for 20% off your first purchase at UntuckIt.com. Hi, I'm Tom Dupree. I've been in the investment business for 42 years. In this business, you observe human nature closely, and if you really observe, you might learn something. One thing I've learned is that when everybody is telling you something, it's usually wrong. Truth typically speaks in a small voice that requires effort and discernment to recognize. This is as true in the investment business as it is in life. Advice dispensed loudly and in a pushy way is usually being given with an ulterior motive, not one that is designed to benefit the hearer. For a free review of your retirement investment portfolio, call the Prefinancial Group at 859-233-0400 or look at DupreeFinancial.com. And be sure to listen to the Tom Dupree Show on Saturday mornings on News Radio 630 WLAP and Louisville's Talk Radio 1080 WKJK. 630 WLAP.
Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. We've got a special guest this week. His name is Norman Jetmanson. And here's our host, Tom Dupree. We're back with Norman Jetmanson, who is involved in producing a film about the 1899 University of the South at Sewanee football team, which miraculously won five football games against major powers in six days on a train. So, uh, And our bump music is by a Swanee graduate, Bradney Foster. Who was friends with myself and my brother, and we played with him up there on the top of the mountain. You played music, not football. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's correct. None of us played football. Because when I was there, you had, uh, just a side note, you had uh, the coach, uh, Shirley Majors. That would be the father of the Majors clan, including Johnny Majors, who coached at Tennessee. Uh, Bobby Majors, who I'm not sure where. I know he played maybe at UT. Um, he did. There was a Larry Majors, the brother. Um and he had some other assistant coaches, uh, one of whom was Coach uh, Clarence Carter, whom uh, uh, who was a unique individual um, in his own right. Uh, at times, uh, there was an assistant coach uh, named Doug Pascal, who was also a professor of English and uh, a Rhodes Scholar and had played football himself, Doug being from McKenzie, Tennessee. Uh, later, Doug became the uh, uh, headmaster at the Montgomery Bell Academy in uh, Nashville. And uh, today, another Swanee graduate is the headmaster there, uh, a fellow named Brad Joya who uh, was up there with us. These are just side notes, but they kind of rotate around the Sewanee football program, and it's all very interesting stuff. So, Norman, um, you know, they they did this road trip. Uh, it was unheard of. Somebody, I read somewhere that by the fourth or fifth game, the crowds were really starting to gather uh, as they were doing this road trip because it was it was history in the making and everybody kind of knew it. Right. It's fascinating because at the time, and of course football was very in its very early stages. At the time, Luke Lee and the football team were not doing this so they could make history. They didn't know that 120 years later we would be looking on this season is just absolutely unbelievable and when david cruz and i started the film we we agreed that we wanted to do it because a film like this we can talk about what the lore of the team is and that's just as interesting as the fact and we we had agreed that what we thought we would find is a lot of lore about the team but not a lot to back it up in fact just the opposite the facts of the team, the truth of the team, is as amazing as the lore and backs up the lore. So when when uh, Luke Lee put together this train trip, which was just designed to pay for the trip to Texas, um, he had to. He, this was a twenty five hundred mile train trip, and so Sewanee was gone for ten days and traveled twenty five hundred miles most of the time. They traveled after a game. They got in the, on the train and traveled all night to the next destination. So in uh, early November, they left Sewanee, went to Austin, Texas, and on uh, a Thursday played the University of Texas in Austin and won that game. They, they went to a dance that night and then got on the train and rode all night to Houston. And the next day, Friday, they played Texas A&M. Then they got on the train and rode to New Orleans and on Saturday played Tulane. 
then they actually had a day off and uh luke lee would not let them go out on the town so that saturday night they went to a play and <laughs> as i understand it uh one of the player, excuse me, one of the actors came out dressed in purple, which is Sewanee's color. And when the Sewanee team saw that, they stood up and gave the Sewanee cheer, and the whole crowd went nuts. <laughs> then they traveled. They traveled on Monday to Baton Rouge, where they played LSU, and then um, got in the train one more time and. On Tuesday, played Ole Miss in Memphis, and it's interesting that um, the Ole Miss. What happened is, by the time they got to New Orleans, papers were starting to realize this was an epic uh, journey and started writing about it. When they got to Ole Miss playing in Memphis, the Memphis newspaper on the day after the game said that some of the Ole Miss players were in a crippled condition. But that was offset by the, the what they called the bandaged boys in purples. Excuse me, the bandaged boy in boys in purple. And what a credible respect the Ole Miss people had when they saw the Suwannee guys. You can imagine no equipment, playing both ways, and uh, playing five games in six days. They were really, really beat up by the time they got to to Memphis. So it's just an incredible story all right norman um get inside if you can or you know there's more here than just these these games and stuff what's going on inside the heads of these people these these young boys they really look young in many cases they look baby-faced what is i think that that speaks more to your age than their, than their well, age. Well, I, I know that, but uh, <laughs> I, I take fish oil every day. So, you know, I'm trying to stay young. I, I'm, you know, I'm interested in uh, what's going on with these, these kids that, are, that they're willing. Every day, thousands of hackers try to steal your crypto. But Arculus uses air-gapped technology by forming a protective barrier that insulates you from hackers and secures your crypto. Order yours at GetArculus.com. To do this, uh, you know, they they just throw themselves at the situation in going into warfare, absolute physical deprivation, uh, sleeping on a train, you know, getting smacked around for, you know, the, Today's player would never consider putting up with this kind of thing for no money, no fame, really, uh, probably producing um, injuries that are going to linger with you for the rest of your life. Uh, and you, you just wonder what was in their minds. Yeah. When you look at what they accomplished and they thought the train trip was a a big joy ride. They just came from a different era and they were tougher than, than we are today in the 21st century. They were tough minded. They were physically tough and they love football. And let me say this about Sewanee in particular at this time, because there was no NCAA and very few regulations, there was no real oversight of these schools. So, uh, several schools, including several that Sewanee played in 1899, hired what they called tramp or ringer athletes. They weren't real students. They were just hired to play football. At Sewanee, however, Vice Chancellor Benjamin Wiggins required that all football players be full-time students and that they maintain respectable grades. When you think that Sewanee had a squad of 21 players, and they all had to be full-time students and maintain respectable grades and play teams that weren't abiding by those rules. It's pretty remarkable. And it, it's uh, not just remarkable. It's almost otherworldly. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it makes you think about, uh, something out of the Iliad or, you know, uh, something out of, uh, Greek or Roman mythology. 
Absolutely. And um, one story just to highlight what they endured. The stole back on the team was a man named Orman Simpkins. And he was a fullback. He also was a, a vicious tackler on defense. He kicked extra points and field goals and punted all around. And, and a number of players on the 1899 team said later in life that Simpkins was the best player on the team. Well, he got injured a lot as the fullback because they would run him right up into the middle of these uh, defenses. And he got he was badly hurt and particularly in his legs to the extent that, um, after he finished playing at Sewanee and went out into the world, he had his, one of his legs amputated due to the injuries from football. And there's a poignant letter that we have that he wrote his teammate, uh, Bill Claiborne in 1916, where he said being crippled, for life is no small matter. And he blamed Luke Lee and Coach Suter for making him play when he was hurt. And yet, remarkably, he said, but I'm glad I went to Sewanee and I'm glad I'm a Sewanee man. Well, that's not the end of the story because in the 1920s, um, he went into Georgetown Medical Hospital to have his second leg amputated and died on the operating table. So we we talk about the glory of this team and uh, their accomplishment, and that is certainly part of the story, but it's not the whole story. This is also a story of great pain and great sacrifice. And some of these uh, men did suffer for the rest of their lives from playing football. Right. Well, um, there was a period in there where – You gotta you you some of it has to be um, chalked up to sectional rivalries. The North, you know, had won the war, and now they were the the king of football, and you couldn't fight another war as the South, but you could sure decide you were going to learn how to beat the North at their own game. And I got to believe there was some of that in there. I, I've been told by my friend Kent Brown, he, he was a center college guy, and, you know, that was the center college praying colonels, and that there was an element of that that we're going to show the guys from up north that we can uh, we can play that game too. Absolutely. I think part of the reason that football grew nationwide, but particularly in the South, was that these boys' fathers and grandfathers had fought in the Great Civil War. And these guys didn't have the opportunity to go fight a war, so football became a proxy for battlefield glory. And it it came out of this notion of warfare, that you proved your manhood by playing football, and that's part of the reason you couldn't go back into the game just like you can't in wartime. And so that whole mindset around war and battle and being willing to, to be killed was remarkable. And then you put it on top of that, that even though football started in the Northeast, it quickly caught on in the South. And part of that is exactly what you said. They had lost the Civil War. They had uh, endured a lot of, uh, depression and um, financial uh, harm after the war. And yet suddenly football was a way that they could prove themselves and they could, they could go beat the Yankee teams. There you go. And that was part of it. I'd like to add one other thing that after that trip through the South, uh, Sewanee played a few more games and one of them was against an Auburn team whose coach was John Heisman, for whom the Heisman Trophy is named. That's right. Heisman was a very colorful character. And uh, in, this, in, in this game that was played on Thanksgiving Day in Montgomery in 1899, a crowd of 
4,000 people showed up. Um, there were a lot of fights during the game. Guns were pulled. Um, it was really a, a, a real showcase for uh, Southern violence. And that was just the crowd. Then Sewanee was really getting manhandled by Auburn. Auburn had the upper hand. And um, what what they did was they had sewn leather handles on their pants so that the Auburn players could grab each other's handles and form an illegal wedge, or the runner could grab somebody's handle and they're pulling forward. So Coach Suter um, instructed his players that the way to break this illegal wedge was to fly at them cleat first and knock their legs out. Okay. So that, that was in the first half. Then at some point, Suter complained to the refs, and they stopped the game to make Auburn pull off their handles, which outraged Heisman and the Auburn folks. <laughs> but what it also did was it caused the game to be delayed, as, as did some of the fights in the crowd. The result was that at halftime, it was Suwannee 11, Auburn 10, but Auburn looked like they really had the upper hand. At halftime, the, the uh, captain of the team that year was named Henry Diddy Siebels, and he was from Montgomery. And at, when he went to the sideline at half, his brothers came up to him and said, Diddy, you've got to win the game. We bet the house on the game. If you lose, we'll have to kick your mother out. And there was a lot of betting in the game. Um, that's part of the reason for all the fights. There was a lot of betting. Right. But the point is, 11 to 10 at halftime, Auburn looks like they're going to probably pull this out because they're just the better team that day. And the ref calls the game for darkness 14 minutes into the second half, <laughs> which is normally a 35-minute half. Now think about this, Tom. A couple of days later, Coach Heisman writes the Birmingham Age Herald a long letter basically saying that the refs cheated them out of their win. The next day, the referee writes a letter um, against Heisman saying Heisman's just a big crybaby, and we all know he's a crybaby. And, uh, and then Heisman writes another letter responding to that. So that wouldn't happen in the days. No time but um it, it, it's just and that's part of this whole film is the stories are just uh, amazing all the things that happened back then that many of which couldn't happen today we're speaking with norman jetmanson of birmingham he has been behind the production helping with the production of this film norman tell us a little bit about just briefly the film the website and when you expect to release it. Sure. Um, David Cruz and I are doing this film out of our love for the story and our love for Swanee. Um, we're not, we're doing this without charging anything to the film. We're doing this on our own time. Um, so we've also had to raise all of our own money. We'd like to raise at least 300,000. We've raised about 250,000. If anyone is interested to learn more about the story, they can go to our website, which is Sewanee1899.org. Sewanee1899.org. You can read more about the team. You can watch a trailer of the film. And you can also um, make a donation online if you're so inclined. And you asked me earlier, why do the film? And I think it's a couple of things, Tom. One is it's, it's, it's an amazing story. There have been some articles written about the team. There's been a, a book written about them. But no one has dug into the story to the depth we have. And it's, it's an amazing story. And I'll say this, too. We have found six or seven or more descendants of the team including Luke Lee's daughter, who was in her mid-90s, and Diddy Siebel's daughter-in-law in her mid-90s. We found another, a number of other grandchildren who 
interviewed for our film. We've interviewed four coaches who've won national championships, two of whom, Bobby Bowden and Johnny Majors, have passed away. So what we realized while doing the film is we're capturing a part of history that if we hadn't done this now would have been lost forever because by the next generation, no one would know the story. No one would care. And so we've captured part of history. We've got Bobby Bowden talking about the team. We've got Johnny Majors talking about it. We've got these descendants. And uh, that's what's made it just so fulfilling to know that, that this story will be preserved forever. Well, we've been visiting with Norman Jetmanson, who's in the process of making a movie, Iron Men of Swanee, The Story of 1899. We'll post the website on our on our blog and radio tab at DupreeFinancial.com. Stay tuned for the second hour with our financial guys. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Your week is the Biden war crisis. Horses chasing down black people. Infrastructure. Socialism. Republicans get out of the way. The war is a strategic failure. The vaccine is from God to us. Every day. The most up-to-date information. News Radio 630. WLAP. Hi, I'm Tom Dupree. I've been in the investment business for 42 years. In this business, you observe human nature closely, and if you really observe, you might learn something. One thing I've learned is that when everybody is telling you something, it's usually wrong. Truth typically speaks in a small voice that requires effort and discernment to recognize. This is as true in the investment business as it is in life. Advice dispensed loudly and in a pushy way is usually being given with an ulterior motive, not one that is designed to benefit the hearer. For a free review of your retirement investment portfolio, call the Prefinancial Group at 859-233-0400 or look at DupreeFinancial.com. And be sure to listen to the Tom Dupree Show on Saturday mornings on News Radio 630 WLAP and Louisville's Talk Radio 1080 WKJK. McDonald's is hiring. The crew could use someone like you. If you're someone who enjoys career advancement and assistance while making lifelong friendships, someone who enjoys competitive pay and pay time off while making human connections, someone who enjoys flexible hours while making a difference, or someone who enjoys employee discounts while learning valuable life skills, McDonald's is for you. Text APPLY to 36453. 